listening to The Cooler Ring, a podcast made for manufacturing marketers. Here are Carmen Perry and Jeff White. Welcome to The Cooler Ring, a podcast for manufacturing marketers brought to you by Cooler Partners. My name is Jeff White and joining me today is Carmen Perry. Carmen, how are you making out, sir? I am uh, making out quite well, quite well. And um, and uh, I'm sorry once again for disappointing the listeners for being the uh, uh, the person that you introduce. I mean, I, it's always that great hope that it could be somebody else on the podcast, but get along. Well, normally there is usually somebody else, but today it's simply you. Yeah, at least one more uh, to yeah. help uh, dull the pain. But look, at today's uh, conversation, I think, uh, gives us um, uh, yet an op- another opportunity to to reflect on the, the first 100 episodes. Um, and I, I wanted to... Um, Kind of, I don't know if you will. Kind of extract a bit of some of the the game changing lessons or conversations that we've had in this uh, in the, in the first one hundred shows. Absolutely. I mean, we thus far we you know we've covered um, two separate topics that have both been you know not not just uh, interesting, but you know very much of the time that we're in you know our, our first recap episode of the first 100 episodes was about abm and you know account-based marketing is certainly taking the world by storm in the last episode uh we were covering off um you know how some of our guests have uh implemented and talked about customer feedback and really pulled it into everything that they are um and like you say this in this our uh recap episode we're we're just looking to you know talk about some of the things that we just they've been impacting us ever since the day we recorded the episode uh, we bring it up in casual conversation with people who have absolutely no interest in what we do <laughs> and yet we find it that interesting yes that's how, that's that's what happens you just go to the bar or what have you and uh, and and strike up conversations with random people about manufacturing marketing this is not a way to make friends Jeff. yeah but uh, hey i have a podcast <laughs> but in all seriousness <laughs> there, there, there are uh, topics that um, that surface time and again and lessons that seem to be uh, enduring so let, let's just jump into it a- absolutely um the 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 first uh uh, show, I, I believe it was episode two. Uh, it was. Uh, 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 so uh, it, it certainly was, was early days. Uh, we had the uh, pleasure of having Monique Elliott join the podcast. And uh, Monique, I think, was formerly of GE Industrial Solutions and then moved to ABB um, Electrification Products, which was which purchased that GE division. And now, uh, I believe, Jeff, she's with Schneider. Yeah, she? Schneider Electric. Uh, at the time that we recorded the episode two years ago, she was the global head of customer experience marketing and communication in the electrification division of ABB. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly brought a, uh, a very interesting way of thinking about marketing that, uh, as we've said, uh, has certainly stuck with us. Yeah. So, uh, well, let's, uh, let's hear it from Monique first, and then let's talk about it. Sure. So, and and look, I will be the first one to admit, this is not a concept that, you know, I created, that my team created. We actually took a page out of the IT organization. And in the world of agile IT development, um, this whole shift from we're not delivering um, a project, we're, we're, we're working on a product development. And the way that it, it all sort of went down is we had, we had buy-in from a leadership perspective with budget and resources. They said, yes, we get it. This is the future. But 
every time we would go kind of that one level down in the organization, so not the senior leadership team, we were still hitting um, some friction points and and people not wanting to to help us out. And that's what we were really looking for, was we were looking for assistance to drive this forward. And I started paying attention, this goes back to the listening, um, around so what teams or what functions were getting the traction <laughs> and were getting kind of like progressing. And it was the, the teams that were talking about our products, like the actual tangible products that we sell, the products that I was trying to sell online. And there was a few reasons as to why I think those conversations were working so well. It was because when you talk about a product, there's a life cycle to it. There isn't a stop and a finish. Um, There's dedicated teams. There's this desire of an evolution. And when marketing was coming into the room talking about their project, that word immediately evoked a deadline and a budget and a start and a stop and temporary resources, because when the project was over, you could move on. And so by watching how our IT organization was structuring the conversation, and more importantly, watching how our product management teams were structuring the conversations, we thought maybe we just need to reframe this and change the vocabulary around it. I'm not working on a marketing project. I'm working on a product. My product just happens to be the development of an e-commerce solution. Um, and so we we learned from our friends who were doing this successfully in other functions and tried to apply it to our function. Um, and lo and behold, after a little bit of time, we started to get the traction that we needed. In listening to you reiterate that, it seems to me, uh, in some way, it changes uh, from like almost a project, like something to get through. What I jotted down as you were saying, I guess, and I don't know if this makes any sense or not, but it's like it's like something to get through versus something to work on. It sounds as though that was part of the mind shift that happened there. Well, you know, you, no, you're exactly right. It, it does make sense. And and I always like to share this story. Like when you, I'd be walking in the hallways and people would say, hey, when are you going to be done with that e-commerce project? And that just stops you in your tracks because you're like, when are you going to be done with e-commerce? Like when, <laughs> that's like saying, you know, when, when, when are you going to be done with marketing as a function? Like it, there is no start and stop to what we're trying to do from a digital enablement perspective. There's there's an evolution to it. There might be ebbs and flows as you learn and as you pivot and as you adjust. Um, and so, yeah, when someone asks you that question, you know, when are you going to be done with that project? There, There is a, it, that does assume that you just got to get through something and then you'll be done with it. Um, so you're absolutely right. I think that's a great way of looking at it. Yeah, products certainly get iterated, whereas projects don't. <laughs> projects are, well, the budget's gone now and we're done and the thing is launched. So uh, I guess we don't need to do anything else with it. You can only but... do it again if it failed the first time. Right. Yeah. Whereas products, you assume That's right. Iterated. That's right. Yeah. And that was the whole, there's this life cycle to products and there's ongoing investment. There's dedicated teams. You know, certainly you may have a sunsetting to your point of a product or, or an onboarding of a new product. But, but when people talk about projects, there's this whole notion of approved, not approved. Like really ever do you sit in a product meeting and talk about it being approved or not approved? You talk about the, the you know, the maturity of it. Making it better, evolving yeah. it. Absolutely. Yeah. Evolving it. Right, right, right. So it's it was interesting. And even now as we're talking about this and I'm reflecting back, what struck me was the importance of language when we're having these meetings. So you might think using that term is really benign and there's no downside to it. Like, oh, that's just a word. But it really does evoke 
a particular mindset that drives decisions. So uh, there's the uh, there's the enduring bit, right? It's like um, thinking about most of what you do as a marketer as creating, caring for, nurturing, and evolving marketing products versus executing one-off marketing projects. Um, I think as Canadians, we get made fun of for saying projects sometimes, but I don't know that we do that that much. I, I think I always say projects, which yeah. is how everybody else says it. But nevertheless, so um, products versus projects. And um, now I, I know in Monique's case at that point, she was talking a lot about it through the lens of the e-commerce initiative that was underway. And of course, e-commerce is um, you know, so obviously something that uh, lends itself and to, to requiring iterative improvement and, and evolution. So the notion of thinking of an e-commerce um, initiative as a, as a project is, uh, um, I, I guess, you know, in the way she puts it, it makes it seem, that of course, that would be so silly. But that applies to just so much of what we do as marketers, that if you take that, that product orientation versus project, um, it's going to... Um, it's going to not only change um, how you think about it, it's going to change how you are able to get your organization to think about what it is you do. And, and I think that was really the driving force where she was finding that she wasn't necessarily getting traction with the organization overall. They would do something, execute on it, and then it was moving on to the next project. And as a result, I, I think... You know, getting people to think of uh, an e-commerce platform as a product. But one thing that certainly contributes to that, of course, is that that particular platform had its own PL that she was responsible for. So as a result, it, it's probably easier to get people to begin to think about that. But I mean, as you go through the list of the kinds of things that modern digital marketers are facing these days, more and more of them can really be thought of as products, you know, whether that's um, a mobile app or an e-commerce site, as we were talking about, or, you know, anything that is going to require that isn't just a one time, you know, get in, get out, see the results and move on to the next thing. Anything that is going to require any degree of care and feeding, um, you know, a website is a great example of something that should be considered a product because it is not a one time build it and step away and forget about it a piece of marketing content. Yeah, and I, I mean, uh, look, I'm going to really date myself with the reference, but there's something like a, a, in her in her message that's kind of suggestive of this notion of almost like manufacturers are from Mars and marketers are from Venus or something <laughs> like. They talk these very different languages, um, and, and that uh, she saw uh, IT uh, in particular uh, and, and and product development as well having um, a lot of success in how they talk about their initiatives um, through a product development lens versus a project lens. And I thought it, it's interesting to think about it, how, it, how that approach can get the marketer speaking the same language as the manufacturing enterprise they're working for. Yeah, and, and certainly, you know, engineers think of things in product life cycles. Um, IT people think of things in product life cycles, the software that they use. And so much of what we do today as marketers is technology driven. So uh, again, something else that, uh, that very clearly demonstrates and points to the use of the 
language of product as opposed to project. And uh, I, I think it's just, it's come up in so, so many of our conversations, most of them to do with work. And I encourage folks to uh, look at It's going to be a long path to get the word project out of your vocabulary. Uh, I struggle with it still. So uh, start now. <laughs> so the, the next episode we want to uh, highlight kind of changed the, it, it, I think it's a, it's a good uh, episode. It was a fantastic conversation for pushing you to uh, think about things in a fundamentally different way and, 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 and really take a more innovative approach to uh, the challenge at hand. Now, I know that's being very vague, <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, Greg Police, the, the, the head of marketing at Klein Tools, um, uh, you know, some people would say, oh, well, Klein Tools, they're such an established company, such an established brand within the market that they serve. Um, you know, his job is easy. Uh, and, and you know, maybe there's parts of that that's true. I don't know if Greg would agree with that or not. But I think it certainly makes it a bit, in some marketers' minds, it probably makes it sexier than a lot of straight up B2B marketing. But this is still B2B marketing. But it also means that kind of outdoing yourself might be harder though too, right? Like <laughs> uh, in, in some way. And I think that's where Greg really stepped up with um, with with his initiative uh, with National Signing Day. So, um, uh, well, let's um, uh, see if we can roll a clip uh, where Greg introduces National Signing Day. Um, so, you know, there's a big issue going on um amongst the skilled trades the you know there's there's not enough skilled uh tradesmen not enough people going into the trades um it's been defined as the the skills gap um is the phrase that you'll hear mentioned an awful lot um you know quite frankly there are a lot of people electricians and hvac guys and plumbers and um, all those skilled trades are are you know 50 some years old they're all getting towards retirement and there's not enough young people going into the trades and it's something that obviously being a brand that sells to the trades, um, it's concerned us. And, and we've taken a look at it and said, hey, what can we do? How can we um, how can we take a stand on this? And how can we help promote uh, the, the trades as a viable career for uh, for people to get into? Um, so we had done some, you know, we had done some infographics and some press releases. And we sort of felt like, you know, that was just sort of us standing on the sidelines shouting and we needed to get some, uh, some skin in the game and, and really um, help, you know, be at the forefront of this issue. Um, so we, uh, in our, with partnering with Skills USA, uh, which is a um, career and technical student organization that serves almost 400,000 high school, college uh, students here uh, in the U.S., and we partnered with them to launch National Signing Day. Uh, so just a couple weeks ago, uh, on May 8th, uh, we went out to about 300 high schools across the country um, and acknowledged, honored, and celebrated about 3,000 seniors uh, across the country who had chosen to pursue careers um, in the skilled trades. And what this did for us was it put us at the forefront of the skills gap issue. Um, it raised our awareness. It raised, you know, selfishly, it also raised our awareness um, amongst, you know, these future tradesmen who are going into the trades. Um, but ultimately what it did was it sort of gave a new perspective to 
high school kids who are not sure what they're going to do that says, oh, hey, you know what? Going into the skilled trades is a pretty cool uh, thing. Uh, they had that big signing day down in the gym where everyone got there and there were businesses and the mayor came out and the councilman came out. Um, you know what? Maybe I want to look into a career in the trades. And so, you know, too often, you know, the the, um, the high school running back or the high school quarterback or point guard uh, gets their national signing day where they're going to commit to a college. Um, all the kids who are going to regular four-year schools, uh, they have a day where it's uh, decision day or commitment day. They get to come to school wearing their, you know, their college sweatshirt to say, hey, I'm going to this college or that college. Uh, but the kids who are not going to college or not going to be a quarterback at uh you know, a, a big school, um, those kids are forgotten. So we've now elevated and raised their profile and said, hey, you get your day two, um, national sign days for you, uh, feel good about your choice, feel good about going to the trades, um, and Klein Tools is here to support you um, as you embark on your career. I think what's so cool about this is how the concept of national signing day brings a real personalization of this brand to people who are going to probably be interacting with client tools for the rest of their lives. So you're, you're introducing a concept and an idea and a brand to a group of um, up and coming tradespeople and lifting them up in a way that is, you know, they've probably never been lifted up before. You know, like they, he talks about this. They were trying to create something with National Signing Day that was as big a deal as, you know, someone getting going to the NFL or, or moving on to a, you know, a college with a giant sports scholarship. You know, yeah. And, and, and there's really some, um, you know, magic there in seeing the opportunity to, address an issue and a challenge that is uh, far bigger than them. Um, um, most everybody in the manufacturing space knows that the shortage of tradespeople, um, that sort of talent is a big, big problem. You know, be it uh, electricians, welders, welders, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and, uh, but to, to and, and then to draw such a, a lovely connection between how they can kind of help address that challenge, uh, and 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 between that and, and their their brand, um, I, I think it's just a it was a fantastic initiative. And I mean, it, it's one of those ones that looks so uh, so darn smart in hindsight, right? I mean, once somebody does it, everybody else that's kind of at all like Klein. Well, I mean, I think Greg talked about in that in the show, having people snap on tools kind of wants to be a part of it, and others, yeah. Um, and uh, so it's the kind of thing that seems a little bit obvious in hindsight, which uh, is the case with a lot of good ideas. Um, but I guess I, I, what I, I guess I, I think about when I think about this episode is that kind of um, early bit of advice I received as a marketer when evaluating kind of big ideas that are kind of going to take a lot of investment. It seems like it might be a bit of a game changer for you. Is that worth it or not? Ask yourself, if my competitor did this, how happy or angry would I be about that? <laughs> and how much would I wish that it had been my idea? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. And, 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 you know, and, and I think, uh, well, we see that, of course, in the reverse when, when, uh, when folks like Snap-on call up 
folks like Klein and say, hey, can we be a part of that next year? Yeah. That, that, that's uh, just that same validation going in the other way. So it's a, it, it, yeah, um, I really commend uh, Greg and the team at Klein for, for having the, the courage to, to do that. And, um, and, and I know it's only going to get bigger uh, in the coming years. Yeah, maybe virtual next time. But, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I think one of the lessons, too, that you can take away from this is that rather than, you know, for Klein to come at this with such a, you know, they did this across the country. This was a this was a massive undertaking. It wasn't just like one local high school. They initially did. I think my memory serves around 300 schools at yeah. the first row. Yeah. So it's, you know, this was not insignificant uh, in terms of effort and cost and all of that. But one of the things that this initiative helped them do was cement Klein tools in the minds of other manufacturers and people who buy their products and spec uh, spec their products. Um, it connected them with a more important, higher tier issue, the skills gap issue, as opposed to simply being about, you know, we've got better quality pliers. <laughs> you know, and if you can do that and you can come up with something that is going to tie your brand to a, a, you know, a true pain point that may not be directly related to the product itself, you know, you have a, a potentially winning proposition there. Yeah. And those, um, those ideas don't come along every day, which is why they're so compelling when they do. Yeah, you know. precisely. So moving on to our last, um, guests that we're going to talk about. And this is also one of those episodes that, you know, just keeps coming up. Just um, we've had a number of conversations with some uh, some clients of ours about this concept. And and just many people are really interested in what's going on here. And uh, Lisa Butters is the um, is the guest that we're talking about. She's with uh, Honeywell um, and is the general manager of an e-commerce marketplace for used aerospace parts called Go Direct Trade. And uh, just, you know, I think that one of the more compelling aspects of the story that Lisa tells is just how she was able to bring this concept to life within a, a large, old manufacturing business like Honeywell in an area that you wouldn't necessarily think would be primed for innovation like this. So let's uh, let's listen to Lisa and hear what she has to say. We're trying. I mean, I think everyone is so used to this concept of B2C. I mean, you and I, we purchase things online every day. And that consumer experience online, like I would say it's, it's far easier to design for a consumer experience than it is to design for a B2B experience. And the reason why is that when it comes to a business-to-business transaction, there are so many more complex things that occur inside of that transaction than when you and I buy something on, you know, Etsy.com with a credit card. When it comes to B2B, you still have companies that pay with really antiquated ways, like paying with a purchase order. You still have the need for companies to be able to map to multiple build to codes and ship to codes and sold to codes. You have global companies that have taxation across, you know, a hundred different countries that's where the complexities really start occurring for these B2B transactions. For us, the key is really figuring out how to ha- you know, how to understand the consumer experience, but then take that consumer experience and overlay it and try to mask all the complexities that you have to really design for in a B2B transaction. And so while it may seem like, hey, you know, within GoDirectTrade, 
you know, it really is a B2B marketplace, but, you know, we're trying to bring in that consumer experience every single day. Like we just had a sprint that went live. We're still trying to design for making an easy consumer like experience within our marketplace. I mean, there's still so much work to be done in this space, even though, yes, I think we've come pretty far in trying to design for a good consumer experience on our B2B marketplace, but still a lot way for us to, to go with that. Yeah, when we first, the decision was first made by Honeywell probably back in March of 2018 um, to say, hey, we're interested in doing something within the used space. And what was really interesting is I took over as a general, there was no site or anything like that, but I took over as a general manager in April. And when I first got into the job, like on day one, I, the idea that they had really come up with from the powers that be was to create kind of like a, a listing service. Um, almost, It was actually very similar to what all the competitors were doing today. And they weren't going to make pictures um, required. They weren't going to make product images required. And so honestly, the first decision I made as the GM on day one was, no, screw that. Like we're going to, if you, if we do that, we're going to be just like all the competitors out there, which is like a Craigslist, but without pricing pictures. And really, that's when we made that decision to say, we're going to be more like a blend between Amazon and Etsy. We're going to be like Etsy in that we're going to let storefronts launch and have all of their listings and bring in their, you know, the, the branding and all that they want within their own storefront. And we're going to be like an Amazon in that we're going to be an incredibly easy consumer-like experience. And we will never let anybody list without price, product images, and quality paperwork. Because without that level of transparency you can never have e-commerce. People will never check out unless you have the right level of transparency where they feel comfortable enough to check out. And that's really where that whole, like our entire strategy and business model was really decided the really like the first week that I started. And then from there, it just kind of took off. We actually did our first minimum viable product. It took us about 14 weeks um, to build our first MVP one. And then we launched um, on December 18th. So actually, it's it's kind of funny that you and I are we're doing this podcast because today is our first birthday. So like outside of this office, like this little cubicle that I'm hunched over at right now in the dark because our light's broken, <laughs> um, we have like streamers and like we brought in a cake and we have this huge banner because we're celebrating our first birthday today. You know, there's so much here that it's kind of almost uh, hard to know where to start. Right? <laughs> I, I, it, uh, I, I, I mean, the... Uh, the uh, initiative to um, uh, see the opportunity in this multi-billion-dollar used aerospace parts place or mar market space, and and and, and to, to to create the marketplace upon which that kind of uh, industry can can exist, uh, and to have the foresight to say. Um, that that really it's the the trust that's in, enabled by the frameworks we create and the technology we deploy that's going to to power this long term and bring blockchain to bear to make that happen um it is uh, all uh, just fantastic <laughs> it, it is for sure and and i think one of the things that resonates with me uh, in particular and, and this goes back to monique's point of you know this is very much not this isn't a project, you know, this is a product within Honeywell. It is as much a product as a Honeywell thermostat. It has a, um, a 
profit and loss sheet. It is something that needs to be managed. And it's also really cool how it was basically devised as a startup. You know, they, they came at this with a minimum viable product, got it launched. Uh, I think the day that we were interviewing Lisa, she was actually saying that it was their one year anniversary and there were streamers and cake <laughs> around the office, but it was still dark and everybody was just head down working because um, they're constantly adding new features and new um, components to this um, to this marketplace. But the way that they're thinking about it is how can we enable that, you know, that level of quality experience that people expect from an e-commerce platform, no matter whether they're purchasing something from, you know, a uh, Amazon or, um, you know, a, a store down the street and getting that same level of experience and, and quality and ease of transaction, you know, when you're buying, you know, multi-thousand dollar aerospace parts. And of course, for those of us who don't spend our day in the land of aerospace, we don't always think, of course, that there's a bunch of used parts on all these planes we're flying around. <laughs> and mentioning a birthday, or, you know, kind of cake and streamers in the office in a time of COVID, it occurs <laughs> to me just how strange that seemed. It sounds very, very odd. Here. But I, I also really like, um, you know, Again, this goes back to the notion of uh, go trade, go direct trade being a uh, a product is you know revisiting some of the early implementations and things that you put in place and optimizing them and picking off those components in a very agile way. You know uh, this you know these couple of next sprints we're going to fix a broken checkout process or or make that process smoother and and better to work with. You know. And I mean, this is also something, you know, the learnings from this can apply to almost any e-commerce business, especially an international one, when you're going to need to be thinking of all the different kinds of ship to codes and uh, and different uh, ways that you might need to break up a shipment in a, in a B2B sale type application that you're not necessarily thinking of when you're devising a, uh, an e-commerce platform on Shopify to sell some t-shirts. I remember being in a conversation um, uh, with a uh, steel producer. I believe they were out of Germany and est had established um, essentially a, a third-party marketplace for steel, uh, that online marketplace. And in, and in so doing, actually gave up control of the marketplace to a that's right um, a, a, a group of. Uh, um, I think kind of industry, uh, kind of a cooperative industry group in some way, shape, or form, um, which was obviously a different take on on it than uh, than, than the um, than what Lisa's done here. But both of them are saying, um, uh, you know, are, are are about seeing opportunity in that secondary marketplace and capturing that opportunity uh, online and and. Man, uh, you know, you might not be able to apply blockchain to your particular scenario or your marketplace may look um, different in some way, shape or form. But that, that that nugget can be applied to so many industries out there. There's so many, so many people listening to this podcast right now that there is a there's a secondary market um, uh, in your space that nobody owns yet and owning it 
can be the key to uh, advancing your position in the primary market. I mean, I, I think what what's really interesting about that, too, is just having that fearlessness to open it up. You know, I mean, there's so many there's so many ways that, you know, their management and the C-suite could have said no about this. Like, no, we don't want to be associated with our competitor's product. No, we don't want to open this up and allow them to sell stuff on our network. Are you crazy? I mean, there's so many different ways that that they could have shut this down and most of them make a lot of sense if you're thinking about this in terms of the way that traditional manufacturers would be approaching um, an idea like this but i i do think that it just shows a, a tremendous amount of uh trust and a tremendous amount of um, um well, it's a commitment to innovation really yeah it's it? there's a chutzpah about it you know just being willing to take that leap and open it up to something that may not be directly what you're used to doing as a manufacturer. And for brands the size of Honeywell, uh, 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 you know, the notion of, 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 of taking a, uh, you know, carving out kind of a startup or innovation center or what have you and having it operate um, somewhat on its own set of rules or a different set of rules, um, that that's not uh, entirely uh, new, but I I do wonder um, how far that could come down to mid market uh, industrial B two B manufacturing. You know, because there's at, at a certain level you stop seeing that happen, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but I, I think there's probably more opportunity for it than we than folks maybe think. Like sometimes yeah. people look at that and they say, "Yeah, that that's an idea for Honeywell." That's something that sure. they can actually do, but we couldn't. Well, when you look at the, um, you know, the, the fact that I think they, the, their their initial marketplace development was like a twelve week cycle. Yeah, I mean, they stood it up really quickly. Yeah, I mean, you're not spending ten million dollars in those twelve weeks. I mean, no. you know, so so it is something that would have been accessible to a lot of other people in that space if For they had sure. just chosen to think about it that way. Yeah, and and I think too one of the riffing off of what you just said there you know this isn't necessarily something that a startup without expertise in the space could come in and do you know certainly not in 12 weeks because they wouldn't necessarily understand all the intricacies of of the product lines and all of the things that are required there so you know this may be the domain of existing and entrenched manufacturers and they may be the ones who are best suited to stand up marketplaces like this and other things for connecting people to each other yeah and i just want to push our listeners that don't see themselves at honeywell or some similar sized organization to say you know what that doesn't mean that you can't play this game no too. Yeah. no um yeah so it's been a, a, i think th these three episodes really showcase um some, just some great kind of uh, different ways of thinking about uh, uh, today's marketing challenge and, and and seizing on the opportunity that it presents. And, uh, uh, you know, I really thank these guests for sharing uh, their expertise and experience with us. Absolutely. And uh, it will be back to uh, normal interviews with uh, fascinating manufacturing marketers next week. And we hope you'll join us then. Thanks for listening to The Cooler Ring with Carmen Perry and Jeff White. Don't miss a single manufacturing marketing insight. Subscribe now at coolapartners.com slash the cooler ring. That's K-U-L-A partners.com slash the cooler ring.